Well, good morning. Today we are continuing our sermon series, which summer is almost over, by the way, hard to believe, uh, entitled Summer Vacation. Uh, just a real quick recap. What we've been doing is over the course of the summer, selecting out different stories from the Old Testament or New Testament in which um, there's an individual or group of individuals who take a journey and then pulling from those stories lessons that God has for us about himself, about ourselves, our need for him, uh, so on and so forth, things like that. And, and today we come to a really interesting passage. It begins with uh, the first few verses are fascinating in that we have Jesus and his disciples. They come to uh, a, a lake, a sea, and uh, they get in a boat and they push off and they begin to make their journey across to the other side. It must have been quite a ways because Jesus falls asleep. There's a storm that comes up. They wake him up and say, we're going to die. We're going to die. Don't you care? And Jesus calms the sea and then they get to the other side. And that's when it really gets interesting, because at that point, there's some really interesting characters that come into, into the story. We, we find this man who, it says, is possessed by demons. And he's running around. He's naked. He's living in a cemetery. Uh, he's got chains on and he's super strong. And, and then there's also this huge herd of pigs. There's disciples. And then there's Jesus as well. And, uh, I, I, you know, one of the things that you do when you work with sermons, you have to come up with a title. Sometimes like, you just throw something together. Sometimes you, it just depends. And I, I went the safe route. I went with evening cruise because it deals with the first part of, of the sermon. Um, but I, I thought I would give you, share with you the, the titles that I rejected. Okay. So in the fashion of uh, now the now defunct David Letterman's top ten list, here is my top five list of rejected sermon titles. Okay. And we're a little bit lower budget, so you get five instead of ten. So don't feel cheated. You will thank me after I'm done. All right. Drum roll, please. Number five. Bay of Pigs. No? Okay. American History. Number four. Bringing Home the Bacon. Okay. Number three. When Pigs Fly. Okay. Deviled Ham. You like that one? You like that one? Okay. And the number one, a new dude in a rude mood. Yeah? Yeah. I will be here all week. Thank you. Thanks, Keenan. Okay. thought we'd start with something light because it's kind of a heavy topic, really, isn't it? You know, you got Jesus, you got this man that's possessed by demons and all sorts of wild and crazy things happen. And so as we look into the scripture today, we're going to begin with a couple of questions that we always bring to the scripture. OK, when you when you look at a passage of scripture, what is the author trying to communicate? All right. Uh, in, in what comes before this story? What comes after the story? Who are the characters involved? What did they do? How did they respond? What were their motives? Uh, what is the author trying to convey to us? A truth about God, about our need for him, about others around us, how we're supposed to view them and so on and so forth. And so the first couple of things we want to launch into is first, let's establish the characters. There's Luke. Luke is the author. That's called the gospel according to Luke. Right. And Luke is the only Gentile, only non-Jewish writer of a biblical book. OK, he's an educated man. He's a physician. He's a close friend and traveling companion of the Apostle Paul. He's also an historian, which made him very detail oriented, as we can see from uh, both in this gospel, but also the book of Acts, because he also wrote the book of Acts. 
Now, as a Gentile, it's an interesting perspective we have here because Luke emphasizes Jesus' relationship with people who are outside the normal realm of Jewish society. So in the Gospel according to Luke, we see a lot of interaction with Gentiles. Uh, We see a lot of interaction with outcasts, people like lepers or people who are really sick, prostitutes, shepherds, demon-possessed, so on and so forth. Okay. Also, as a physician, what do you think he's going to emphasize? He emphasizes and features many healings and many miracles. And then also, as a historian, he portrays Jesus' humanity, showing that Jesus was very much one of us when he walked on this earth. Now, having said all this, why did Luke place this story, the story of the Gerasene demoniac, why did he place it here in his gospel? Well, at the beginning of this passage... Right before this story, we see the story of Jesus calming the sea. We talked about that at the very beginning, uh, where Jesus falls asleep, storm comes up, they wake him up, he calms the sea. That's what comes right before this story. What comes right after? Well, starting in verse 40, the rest of the chapter relates two stories. In just 17 drama-filled verses, Jesus heals a woman who's been bleeding internally for, for 12 years. It's a long time. And then astonishingly, he raises a 12-year-old girl from the dead. So, what is Luke trying to convey here? It's a very important, incredibly important theological truth that has ramifications not just for the people of Jesus' day, but also for us today. And it's simply this, that Jesus is is all-powerful. He has power over nature. He calms the sea. He has power over evil. He casts out demons. He has power over sickness and disease. He heals the bleeding woman. He even has power over death. And he raises this 12-year-old girl back to life. So Jesus, Luke in this passage, and he's, 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 he's putting these stories together that he's recorded to emphasize Jesus' power in this particular section of the gospel. Jesus' power over all these things. Jesus is all-powerful. So what are the ramifications for us? Okay. How do we apply this, this, this truth that Jesus is all-powerful to our day? Well, there's, we're going to focus on four things. There's more than four, obviously, but because of time and the scope of the passage, we're going to focus on four things this morning. So back to the story. So Jesus and the disciples have just gone through a storm at sea. They've landed, and the first person they meet is this demoniac. And it's pretty obvious right away that something's not quite right. He's living in a cemetery. He's naked. He's got chains on. He's extra strong. He's antisocial, to say the least. But most troubling of all is it's very obvious that he is completely and utterly lost. He's lost his identity. He's no longer the person that he once was. He's completely taken over and possessed by something outside of him. In fact, it tells us that he is possessed by demons, plural. And when Jesus asks him his name, he simply responds with legion. Now, a legion was a Roman army division of about 6,000 soldiers. And I don't think there were literally 6,000 demons in the man, but, but it's clear there were a great number of them. He's completely lost. He doesn't know who he is anymore. And into this situation, Jesus steps and brings this poor, enslaved, lost man, the gift that all of us really crave and need, Right? That gift is freedom. Freedom. You see, life with Christ is at its core about freedom. Freedom from Satan, freedom from sin, freedom from death, 
for even the things that keep us from becoming the person that we want to be, the person that God calls us to be. And so Luke is very clearly telling us that Jesus has a power to set us free from anything that possesses us, that holds us. Verse 28. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell to his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had commanded the evil spirit to come out of the man. Now, for some of us, this idea of Satan and of demon possession might freak us out a little bit. And for some of us, we might kind of roll our eyes a little bit and think, well, that's hyperbole or, or, or maybe uh, that sort of thing existed in ancient times, but not today in the 21st century. But the Bible is very clear that Satan and his demons are real, that their power is real and that they're dangerous. And that there is a very real spiritual battle going on between God and his angels and Satan and his demons. And in our context in the Western world, an encounter with a demon-possessed person is hardly ever heard of. Yet in much of the rest of the world, there are many accounts of these sorts of interactions. If you ever visit with a missionary uh, from a third world setting, Africa, South America, Asia, uh, you'll, you'll hear stories once in a while like this. So why don't we run into this sort of thing in, in our context much anymore? Well, I think Satan's influence is probably just as great in the West, maybe even more so than it is elsewhere. Because you see, Satan is a very wily and, and um, capable warrior, and he'll adapt his tactics according to the target and the terrain. And why would he so blatantly reveal himself to us with something like a possession when he can be so, so much more effective through more subtle means? When he can indirectly or directly sow seeds of anger or rage or lust or greed or laziness, materialism, all sorts of things that can overcome us and possess us and accomplish the same goal, separation from God, becoming less than what you're called to be, losing your identity, becoming someone that you weren't intended to become. Why would he, why would he change his tactics when he's been so successful? Now, I don't want to dwell on this too long before I move on to the good news, but we need to be aware of whom and what we're dealing with. First Peter 5.8 warns us, Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. There's a great quote by C.S. Lewis in his book, The Screwtape Letters. He writes, There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased in both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. So as followers of Christ, we're obviously not to become obsessed either out of fascination or fear, but we're also not to dismiss Satan as harmless or irrelevant or non-existent. In fact, this story in Luke points out that until the time when Christ Christ returns, Satan and his minions have some power, although limited in this world. For instance, why did Jesus not send them into the abyss? In Matthew's account of the story, in chapter 8 of Matthew, the demons shout out, Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? In other words, the demons knew their defeat and end was certain, but they also knew it was not time yet. God in his sovereignty and patience 
set the perfect time when all will be made right, when good will completely prevail over evil, when Christ will send Satan and his pack of lapdogs to hell forever. Yet it was not time then, and it's not time yet now either. But in the meantime, Jesus also said these words in 1 John 4, 4. We're not to fear. He says, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And so the first thing we pull out of this is that, is that Jesus has the power to free us from Satan and his influences. We have nothing to fear because greater is he who is in the world than he is, who is, in, he is in you than he who is in the world. Secondly, take a look at verse 39, the first two words. Jesus tells the man, return home. You know, one of Satan's ploys is to strain and stretch and eventually break relationships. Because he knows the old adage is true, especially spiritually. United we stand, divided we fall. Therefore, he'll do anything to isolate us, to cause anger, fear, hatred, bitterness, indifference. You know, one of the most devastating things that happened when sin entered the world through Adam and Eve was the breakdown of human relationships. In Genesis, before the fall, marriage is described as one flesh, the two become one. And ever since the fall, the sin nature in each one of us, to varying degrees, puts us at odds with other people. Sometimes, especially, even with those that are closest to us. And sin drives wedges into relationships like husband, wife, or parent, child, or siblings, friends, neighbors, ethnic groups, even among Christians. That's what sin does. It divides. It isolates. It sets us against each other, sometimes subtly, sometimes not so subtly. And when sin is allowed full reign and becomes full grown in a person's life or society, a person becomes an island set apart, ostracized, alone in the misery. That's what happened to this man in the story. We don't know his background, don't know his name, um, probably before this happened, was a normal guy, had a job, had a family. And then something happens. We don't know how he became possessed, but his friends and his family no doubt were terrified to be around him. They tried restraining him. They tried all sorts of things, guarding him. Finally, nothing works, and he gets banned, banished, and he ends up living in an abandoned cemetery with chains, naked, dragging them around behind him, totally lost. Now, this is an extreme example, of course, but each of us have experienced a version of this in some shape or another. When we allow sin and Satan influence and perhaps even control in our lives, at the very least, an emotional distance begins to grow between us and other people, or spiritual distance begins to grow between us and God. But again, the good news is it doesn't have to be that way. That Jesus sets us free from these influences, but he also then turns us from isolation into relationship. I mean, look at the Gospels. What happens? The ten lepers, he heals them, he sends them back to their family. The woman with the well, he forgives her, he sends her back to her town. The man in our story today, he heals him, he, he, he sends him back to his town, to his family. He makes it possible for them to be in community again. You know, like the prodigal son, the story, the great story from Luke 15, we can return home we can be set free for new relationships. Verse 35. And the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they found the man 
from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind. Now, it's interesting that the, in the story of the prodigal son, at the moment the story turns, you know, the hinge point, is when it says, and then he came to his senses. Remember the story of the prodigal son? Son of a rich father, wants his inheritance early, gets it, leaves the country, squanders it all on fast living, ends up working with the pigs, eating pigs' food, lost, and then it says he came to his senses. Basically, he's, he realizes he screwed up big time. He begins to see things as they really are. He comes to his senses. He sees the mess he's made of his life, and he returns to his father. That's basically repentance, isn't it? And repentance and right relationship with God the Father always begins with a change in our thinking. It always involves coming to our senses, understanding that we need God, that we cannot save ourselves, and that the only way is to give our life to him and to return to him. Okay, back to the story. So... What's the response of the townspeople? They're kind of the forgotten characters in this story. Um, it says they've just been told, they've just found out that this crazy man whom they had banished has been seen talking with Jesus. They've no doubt heard of Jesus, and so they're curious about that. They've also been told that roughly 2,000 pigs, were told that in Mark 5, that there was 2,000 pigs, have gone crazy and drowned themselves. I mean, what would you do if, if you heard that 2,000 cattle broke loose and drowned themselves in the Smoky Hill River? What would you do? You'd run down there, right, to see what had happened, especially if you were the owner of the cattle? And so the demoniac is now dressed and he's seated at Jesus' feet. He's calm. He's no longer naked. He's, he's not a raving lunatic. He's sitting with Jesus. He's in his right mind. And the townspeople, their response is they are they're afraid. They're terrified. Of Jesus. And they're probably also a little bit angry about the loss of 2,000 pigs. I mean, that's a lot of bacon. And they ask Jesus to leave at once. I ask you, who's the crazy one here? Is it the man delivered by Jesus or is it the townspeople? You see, you don't have to be demon possessed or clinically insane to not be in your right mind. And the battle for life begins in our minds. That's why in Romans 12:2, Paul commands us, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And there are all sorts of other teachings about the mind in Scripture, but perhaps the most astonishing one is in 1 Corinthians 2:16, where it says, For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. What that means, at least in part, is that when we come to Christ and when he delivers us from sin, when he sets us free, what that means is that we have the capacity and the responsibility through the power of the Holy Spirit within us to see things the way that Jesus does, to begin to think as Jesus thinks, to begin to prioritize the way that Jesus prioritizes, to begin to, to, begin to value the things that Jesus values in life. You know, there's an unanswered question in this text. And I think the answer has something to say to us about this point. The question is, why does Jesus allow the demons to go into the pigs and destroy them? 
I mean, what about the poor pigs? And what about the massive financial loss for the owners and the loss of jobs for the pig herders? Well, there are a couple of reasons, and both are directed to us and to the original witnesses. First, I think Jesus wanted to make very clear to the people that they understood what Satan's original or what Satan's game plan is. It's to destroy every living thing that God has created. And therefore, we must not make any accommodation for him. And second, it was to teach us something about values, about having the right mind, about perspective. The townspeople were in the wrong mind. They didn't have the right perspective. And because of that, they didn't see the demoniac's deliverance and restoration as something to be celebrated, but rather something to be afraid of. And also, no doubt, they would have probably preferred that things would have been left the way that they were without the loss of 2,000 pigs. But in God's economy, the life of one individual is priceless, and so should it be in ours. Walter Wink says that exorcism is a cleansing of the mind. Listen to what he writes. We do not always wish to have our minds cleansed, our understandings questioned, our position or place challenged. I believe this is why the villagers are not ecstatic. The system is working fine, thank you. may not be perfect, but we found a way to manage, so please leave us alone. Do not remove our excuses for why things must be the way they are. Nobody likes a good exorcism. At the core, our worldview must be radically altered when we come to Christ and follow Christ. Our values and priorities must be radically different than what they were before. When we come to Christ and when he sets us free, we then have the capacity to, quote, be in our right mind, to have the mind of Christ. And we understand who we are, our need for him. We understand who the Lord is, who Christ is, what's truly important in this world. And we sit at his feet and and we worship. Finally, verse 39. Return home and tell how much God has done for you. So the man went away and told all over town how much Jesus had done for him. You know, encounters with Christ, true encounters with Christ should should change us. And that change in our lives should not be hoarded or kept to ourselves. Jesus Christ sets us free for the new purpose of going and telling others about what he has done for us. And it should encourage all of us who have ever wondered at one point or another whether God can use us. That the first missionary that Jesus sends to the Gentiles in gospel and loose gospel is a former crazed wild man. And if Jesus can use him, then he can use us. Jesus sets us free for this reason. And the only qualification to go and share the good news is to simply, quote, be in our right mind, to have repented to be born again, to have put our trust in Christ. And I sincerely hope that you have encountered Jesus and that he's changing you. And I pray that you're allowing him to set you free from sin's influence. And I pray that your hearts are moved to share your story. And that just as the demoniac man was found, my prayer is that you would be found at Jesus' feet, clothed in his righteousness, in your right mind. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. 
We thank you for your love for us. God, we pray that as we come to the table in just a moment, I pray that we would come with confidence knowing that you are all-powerful, that you have power, as we've seen in this story, power over nature, power over Satan and sin, power over sickness and disease, even power over death. We thank you, Lord, that you call us to be in relationship with you and with each other. Lord, we pray that as we come to the table now, that we would sense your presence, that we would commit ourselves anew to you, that we would take from the cup and from the bread assured that you have forgiven us, that you have cleansed us, that you have made us whole. And now, Lord, we spend a moment in silence, each one of us in our hearts and minds, as we, as we talk with you, as we confess our sin, as we commit ourselves to you.